Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross. Welcome back from Darwin, Eloise. Thanks. <laughs> I didn't get eaten by a crocodile, which was my main objective. So. Excellent. Well, I'm very glad that happened. Did you see the Humphrey Bogart Cafe? I didn't. It was closed when we went. I drove past it cool. and it looked just like a good old country shack. So, <laughs> you know. Awesome. <laughs> Um, on this episode, we'll be reviewing the film festival Stranger With My Face. Um, we'll be sharing our cultural capital film diary and our pick from movie, and counting down our top three horror films of the 21st century. But first, the film that's inspiring that list, Jordan Peele's Get Out. You got your toothbrush? Sure. Do you have your deodorant? Sure. Do you have your cozy clothes? Got that. What? Do they know I'm black? Should they? You might wanna, you know. Mom and Dad, my black boyfriend will be coming up this weekend. I just don't want you to be shocked that he's a black man. <laughs> I ain't never seen you like this before, bro. Meeting families, taking road trips. Don't come back all bougie, man. Come back, get your damn pants up to your damn stomach. <laughs> <laughs> the comedian Jordan Peele, well known for being one half of the comedy duo Key and Peele, makes his directorial debut with the buzzy horror movie Get Out. The movie stars Daniel Kaluuya as Chris, a young African-American man who meets his white girlfriend's wealthy parents for the first time. Alison Williams plays his girlfriend Rose, with Bradley Whitford and Catherine Keener playing her parents, with her brother being played by the creepy Lou Taylor Pucci-esque Caleb Landry-Jones. All is not quite what it seems at this ostensibly perfect house, What's the deal with their oddly behaved African-American gardener and housekeeper? I know how it looks, Dean tells Chris, about the awkward subtext of their relationship. Awkward subtext quickly transforms into a terrifying text, and Get Out has already made some $200 million off the back of a $4 million budget. Eloise, did the movie give you a similarly explosive return on your investment? (laughs) Metaphorically? (laughs) You know, it really did. This is a really strange film um, and not what I was expecting at all. I hadn't seen the trailer and I think that I'm thankful that I hadn't, given what the both of you have said, that yeah, the trailer basically ludicrous. gives away everything. And I just want to say that if you haven't seen the film, um, you should probably stop listening to us now because we might start, you know, kind of encroaching on some of the trailer's territory and talking about some stuff that you might just want to hold back on until you see it. Because I had I had no idea where this film was going, um, or what was occurring, or which character was going to be the evil one and who, who was going to be the um, bringer of the horror, so to speak. But I just want to talk about the opening scene, which I really loved a lot and it's a little bit of a prologue it's not all that related to the main plot of the film in fact we were just talking about it that i think it is related but you don't realize that until quite late on in the piece but that opening shot is really interesting it's this a man is walking along this like dark creepy kind of silent tree-lined suburban street and the camera is tracking backwards in front of him so he's walking forward and the camera is tracking backwards And you're like, okay, great. We're going along with this character, walking along. He's going somewhere. But then the camera stops and he keeps walking and he keeps walking towards it. And he's on his phone and he's looking around. And as the camera stops and he keeps walking forward, you get this sense that, you know, maybe this thing that is going to attack him is behind the camera and he's walking forward and that this is going to like be where the horror comes from is, you know, kind of where we are as an audience. And that's a really powerful thing. And that's not what happens in the end. That sensation that something is just there and waiting for him is really strong. This kind of dislocating sensation is what's so powerful about this film because it creates, you know, a level of comfort and satisfaction and then it rips the carpet out from under you. And this music plays, this kind of less music run, run, run this song, which is such a potent device in horror films. Um, you know, juxtaposing a joyous sound with a visual horror, violent kind of image is really unsettling and amazing. And I love when movies do it and this movie does it really well. And it's a great opening scene. And then I don't think the rest of the movie disappoints either. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because there are a lot of things in the first maybe hour or so of the film which only really take on extra power when you think about it in retrospect because there is stuff in that opening scene that 
you wouldn't realize but if once you think about it after you've left you're like oh yeah so that was there this thing and there's a lot of foreshadowing and that's one of my mm. favorite things about this film i think and it does so well because there are moments like when uh one of the african-american house keep the housekeeper georgina is spills some iced tea when she's serving mm-hmm. it to the people the guests and you don't realize until afterwards that she only does that because there's a the sound of a clink of a teaspoon against a teacup Oh, that's really interesting. So yeah, there's all there's so many little things. Like the this. sound in this film was really interesting, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, like constant, the tea stirring, which was like this hypnotic <laughs> signifier, um, mm. and it's such a yeah, just like it, it was really crazy. Yeah, it's so incredible. You know, I thought, and you know, that's what is also great is that you have these things that are explainable on one level, but when you go further, there's another level and another kind of element of creepiness and um, kind of vindictiveness that can explain something a whole lot more clearly. You know, I just thought that she overpoured the tea because mm. she was serving, you know, a black guy and that that was what had, like, put her out and made her uncomfortable as a housekeeper. Yeah, and which you totally would think until yeah. you'd seen Catherine Keener's character Missy mm. use this as a hypnotic yes. technique. And also, you know, Dean Armitage, he's played by Bradley, Bradley Whitford, who I hadn't seen since The West Wing, and it was kind of weird to see him in this role. Um, he uses the <laughs> phrase, my, phrase, my man, to, mm. to, to yeah. Chris, you know, which is a, you know, a symbol of ownership as well as a hip, you know, old man, mm. white man way of getting down with the young men. So yeah, there's so many, so much stuff like that, and the film almost didn't need to be that great because it has such a great premise and the setup of using that sort of tension you get from these awkward domestic encounters, and then pushing that really, really far, and not using it for comedy like The Office or like Seinfeld or some of these other places might have done in the past, but using it to really, really dig deep into race relations in America. Yeah, that's true, but it does also have elements of comedy in here. I mean, yeah. it's, it's quite a funny film, and it's not funny in the way that like. It's not silly. It never critiques itself by by making these moments funny. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. the character, the best friend character, Chris's best friend of Rod Williams, is so great, and he's very funny, and he's a little bit of a stereotype, you might say, but he's also just provides, you know, some lighthearted relief. And that moment when he goes to report this missing oh, yeah, person yeah, at yeah. the cops is so great. But I also just want to mention, just you know, because this is my personal opinion. And I wanted to get it out there. That opening shot, so after that first scene that I spoke about, there's this kind of opening montage where you see Alison Williams, you know, getting some donuts and coffee and yes. taking it to Chris's apartment. <laughs> and there's a shot um, from the point of view of this cake cabinet yes. at a cafe or whatever. And I just thought, oh, yeah, yeah. like, <laughs> Barbara Streisand loves to do that shot. She's done it in Yentl. She did it in The Mirror Has Two Faces. In both of those movies, there's a shot through a cake cabinet in the foreground is like this tray of cakes and then the glass pane and then her face looking at the cakes. And that just reminded me so much. I, I know that's unrelated, but I was cool. like, this is just, you know kind of maybe a comedic moment in some way. Yeah, that's so great. But it's just trying to suggest that, you know, like these people have just really mundane lives and are just... Yeah. And also um, very, You know, trying to normalise them. Mm. Very white lives, yeah. That's so great. It's such a nice acknowledgement because this film does nod to so many films, like Stepford Wives, Night of the Living Dead, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, all this sort of stuff. But it also doesn't matter if you've never seen any of those films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it never steals from any of them. It just kind of... No, exactly. You still get it. Yeah. Which Mm. is perfect referencing I think and I think a lot of filmmakers can learn from that the comedy was great very very pointed particularly when the reveal comes and you sort of work out what they're doing and this idea of sort of african-american bodies embodying white minds and all that kind of stuff it's very sort of like fucked up on it if you start thinking about it in the oh, deep yeah. and also yeah. applying it to the reality of American society. So that kind of stuff I found really, really interesting and quite disturbing, but never sort of overdone. It's mm. just, yeah, it's, it's really well measured. It is obviously, and I know a lot of people have commented and some people have started to maybe make fun of the fact Get Out is about race and about race relations. Isn't that amazing? But it really is. But I think on one level, what's so great about this film is that Jordan Peele is so skilled and so schooled in the art of horror filmmaking that he makes a film that could be just a pure horror film, but then he also makes another film that is very much a critique of white society and very, very aware of the way that maybe 
black people or minorities behave when they're around white people. Um, yeah, totally. And I remember, like, for, for such a long time in the movie, I thought that Georgina and Walter, the service staff in the house, I was like, are they spectres? Are they not real? Is there something that only Chris can see in them that this, you know, with this white family, this white liberal family just thinks that they're great people because they serve them? And that's very much because Jordan Peele is creating that, like, suspense and tension and, th- and th- you know, wanting the audience to think that. You know, he's very clever in, in creating this kind of cinematic fear of these characters, but it's also such a clever observation about like our relationship to film in general, I think, and like our expectations, what we fear when it comes to film, we, we fear the unknown, we fear a character on the sidelines with no unrecognizable traits. And I think that, you know, Jordan Paul is trying to say, well, think about those those fears that you have and that they're not always mm. true and correct. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of masterful the way he's taken, you know, liberal white racism and just sold it back to liberal white people mm. for <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> but um, it was, it would, I don't think it's a perfect film as well. I think there's the premise that's under, underlying the entire thing is pretty ludicrous and kind of hard to get onto if you just look at it away from the brilliant screenplay and the, ex- the acting that's around it. The, the half, the semi-lobotomization the thing. Lobotomi- that's, well, it's, it's a stretch. It, yeah. it is. It is, but it's also like the perfect metaphor a- for the for yeah. like a yeah. particular kind of person and a particular kind of way of being in the world. And yeah. I think that's the point of it. And it I harkens agree, yeah. back so powerfully to these like mad scientist movies of, yeah. you know, the James Whale of the 1930s and something like Eyes Without a Face, the Georges mm, Fanjou film, such a good film, that reminds me of that because it's you know it just has scenes of uh, of a scientist in his room doing strange things to people's faces or people's heads you know slicing their sculpts off so i feel like that film reference chucking them in the bin yeah, chucking yeah. Them in the bin. <laughs> it could have i i felt like it could have the gore could have been way more amplified than it is in the film there's only mm. sort of just glimpses at it um there's probably a reason why yes exactly um that's the case. It may or may not be a commercially driven reason. And this gets me on to my second point. You know what was really distracting? All of the Windows paraphernalia. Microsoft Windows phones, oh, Windows computers, right. and then instead of Googling things, they were on Bing. That's, I didn't that was that. very distracting to me. But it was only <laughs> distracting because we've come to expect yes. Apple to be... Apple and Google. Kind of another there. witty subversion in your product <laughs> placement. Jordan yeah, Peele. it's true. It's very yeah. good. And the other thing I wanted to say just quickly is, like, hands up for Stephen Root. Like, what a fucking weirdo. I love him. He's so magnificent. And I thought he was great in this film. Yeah. Yeah, he really pulled that off. So it was a really interesting character. Yeah, he always plays really interesting characters, I think. But just, you know, you see him and he is one of these key people in in what Jordan Peele is trying to do in presenting this, you know, like, familiar friendly, supportive person that you can rely on that is then taken away from you, you know, Mm, um, in terms of the the relationship with Chris. And so, but I just love Stephen Root so much. He's, he's uh, definitely, I want to see more of him. (laughs) (laughs) And we also, I think I have to, we have to give a shout out to the final few minutes of the film as well, without spoiling anything for those few people who will be listening who haven't already seen it. Um, (laughs) I think that's one of the best twists and probably one of the best things I've seen in the cinema all year. I did not see that coming. It was very nice and it was, you know, what else was great about it is that it was kind of a twist, but it wasn't, it wasn't like self-aggrandizing or trying to congratulate itself yeah, for yeah. being so. It was just really, yeah, exactly. a really beautiful moment that yeah. was very, like it was established early in the film that this is where the film might have ended up. And so you could believe it. It wasn't, it wasn't completely ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. I, and I think that's the, the thing about this film is like, it is, it's very aware of what it's doing and self-referential in a way, but not in this sort of showy or groan-inducing way. I mean, you can get what it's doing without... Yeah, it doesn't put you off the way Mm. that so many films that are playing with multiple uh, subtext to varying degrees do can do i think as a viewer me mm. personally anyway yeah i was really impressed like the way it could have gotten a lot more luxury if it wanted to but it always pulled back and it was always about the entertainment it was always always about engaging it's a really easy film to watch as well i think it's not yeah i turned around anders and i saw it together this afternoon i turned around afterwards there were two women in their 70s who just watched it at two <laughs> o'clock on a monday <laughs> it was like so great mm. you know yeah because even my mum was saying to me should i go and watch it it's got a five-star review and i was like yeah <laughs> yeah, I think yeah it, do it i'd be really good to what you think of it, do anyway. it. <laughs> yeah it's for everyone um and Catherine keener is is great i mean bradley mm. whitford it's nice to see him 
team, but I feel like Catherine Keener, it's nice to see her, you know, and she was such a great character. I really, really yeah. liked her. Yeah, she could really I go mean, she full... was a terrible person, but I really liked her performance. It was great. Mm. Yeah. She got the full easy, you know, evil step, Disney stepmother if she ever needed to. Yeah. <laughs> After yeah. seeing this. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. This weekend I was at the Stranger With My Face International Film Festival in Hobart. Uh, and that's a film festival that focuses exclusively on female directors working in horror and genre movies. And it's now in its fifth year, and it is unlike any other film festival I've been to. Uh, it's very small. It has one cinema and one uh, room that kind of doubles as a smaller cinema, and it's also uh, where discussions take and pitches and that sort of thing take place. It's in the very picturesque Salamanca place, and I think... It's also one of those films that tends to, like film festivals, that tends to bring just a few people from overseas and focuses a lot on locally produced work. So the special guests this year were New Zealand director Galen Preston, who isn't that well known but did have some success uh, in New Zealand in 1985 with her horror comedy film Mr. Wrong about a woman's love affair with her car. And uh, it's, 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 a fast, it's a fantastic film. And it was kind of disappeared Ooh. until Quentin Tarantino was given the ability to program a film festival in New Zealand. And he was like, what? You guys haven't seen this? And then there was a whole you know, career resurgence for Galen Preston after that. She was slightly better known for after that. She made a Sam Neill and Rachel Blake thriller called Perfect Strangers in 1991 that was a bit more successful. Um, also, uh, Roxanne Benjamin, was, who's one of the producers of the horror anthology series VHS, premiered her new all-female horror anthology XX on the first night. Um, cinematographer Sandy Sissel, who's worked on Master and Commander and a lot of uh, socialist and left-wing films during the 80s and is possibly best known for doing the cinematography for Wes Craven's film People Under the Stairs, uh, was a special guest as well. She now lives in Tasmania. Um, she uh, presented that film and then did a Q&A afterwards about the, about the production. And alongside these international guests, there was a lot of low-budget works and a short film press, uh, festival program. And in, uh, in between every screening, there was uh, some discussion forums about um, transgender cinema from uh, local musician Chloe Black. Uh, Lauren Carroll Harris talked about Australia's film festival distribution problem. Deb Verhoeven gave a really, really interesting and sporadically hilarious talk about Film Fatale, which is a film, feminist film festival that she ran in the late 80s, early 90s. She actually had all this documentation and showed the letter that she sent to the government to get this funding, which is, seems extremely Amazing, radical yeah. by 2017 standards. But back then, you know, she got the cash. Mm -hmm. But the film, the, one of the things that really struck me was the organisers, Bryony Kidd and Rebecca Thompson, were so laid back. They may have been really, really stressed the whole time, but you would never have known it because they were just kind of wandered between screenings and discussions and then we'll do Q&As and always had like cups of coffee or just food in their hands and we're just like oh yeah it's cool we'll just do it everything was running 20 minutes late but it was totally fine because that's just Tasmania and that's how things roll down there so uh, just a couple of highlights that really stood out was a film called The Book of Birdie which was made by this uh, American uh, uh, director who, who has this great, great relationship with her husband her, sorry her name is Elizabeth Shuk and her husband is Greek and they, every year they take it in turns to produce each other's film so they like move between like they're, they're based in London, but then they will go to Greece and he'll make he'll shoot a film, and then then this film was shot in Wisconsin where um, Elizabeth is from, and it's one of the most beautiful like low budget films I've ever seen. It was just gorgeous. It was shot in the winter in Wisconsin. It was stuff it like sounds that. like something that I would be really into. Yeah, I think you should. winter in Wisconsin. Yeah, it was it was great. Um, another one that really stood out was uh, Christy Gua uh, Guevara Flanagan's 15-minute uh, film What Happened to Her, which is a compilation of scenes from film and TV. I'm super keen to see yeah, that. It was, Just, yeah, it was fantastic. There was an interview with her on 4-3 film. Oh, yeah. That was really fascinating, and she sounds like a really interesting, interesting person. Yeah, so for those who haven't seen it, it's a, a compilation of scenes from film and TV of young female corpses, who, or people who are playing young female corpses, who are mostly in water or taken out of water. So there's a 15-minute so, wow. sequence of just bodies being taken out of water or, look, or looked over in a morgue and that sort of thing. There's a voiceover from the actor Daniel Dietz, who is, who's now a producer and co-made um, Lemonade for Beyonce. But back in 19, 1987, she was playing a corpse in the movie River's Edge. Mm -hmm. And her, the monologue is basically her experience of doing that and how oppressive it is to lie naked for hours, you know, as a woman who's never really acted before, you know, who's 18, 19, while a makeup artist puts on blood and bruises and you're meant to, like, connect with this woman who's had this horribly, horrific, traumatic death while these 30 men stand around you just, like, being a film crew. But actually, probably my favourite film from the festival was uh, Lucy Schroeder's Slapper. Lucy Schroeder is a film, uh, Melbourne filmmaker, and this won the Best Short Film Award at last year's Myth. Uh, it's about a girl called Taylor, played by Sapphire Blossom, who I will buy shares in right now because she's going to be humongous. This was one of the most amazing <laughs> performances I've seen in a long time. Um, and she's basically she spends 15 minutes trying to get $50 together to pay for the morning after pill while, while looking after this really young girl called Vegas. 
and it's so it's really funny it's really bleak it's kind of really sad but it's also like the energy was just relentless it was like exhausting just to watch that for 15 minutes um, and also I feel like it's a really great example for film festivals like Stranger With My Face because you would not really come across this any other way apart from unless you were watching short film festivals at MIFF or some mm, other sort of yeah. festival like this so um, we've been invited to go there next year so I think it's a great idea and we should do that cool. we should definitely and shout out to the screening of Innuendo oh, yeah, starring was... <laughs> one <laughs> Andy Hazel yeah that was why, partly why I went down there and that went really really well too that was nice oh, good. <laughs> thank you So in this fortnight's Film Diary, the Human Rights, Arts and Film Festival is running from now until May 18th at Acme and features such notable award-winning fare as the Oscar-nominated Fire at Sea, the Sundance Favourite Quest and the Palm Door winning D-Pan, as well as a showcase of Australian short films and documentaries highlighting human rights. Cultural Capital's highlight is the Friday night screening of Academy Award nominee Tanner which features a Q&A with co-director Bentley Dean, hosted by our very own Eloise Ross. On May 11, the American Essentials Film Festival opens at the Como Cinema with a screening of 20th Century Women. American Essentials is an odd mix of classics such as The Graduate and Annie Hall, and new releases such as Columbus, From Nowhere and Davion, with a focus of Dave on David Lynch thrown in for good measure. Can't think why. Head to americanessentials.com.au to find out more. Over at Acme, it's screening one of my personal favourites, highlights of 2016, which is The Childhood of a Leader. Please go and see this film. It's from May 12th to the 19th. It's got an amazing soundtrack. It's really, really creepy. It's amazing. Great soundtrack. I bought the soundtrack on CD. I oh, did you? It, it sounds very so uncomfortable. Good. It's great. It's a very uncomfortable. It's listen. like when I try to go for a run listening to Mikalevi's score for Under the Skin. It's like, it's not a happy, <laughs> it's not a happy time. No, you're right. <laughs> so that's screening at Acme. Get down to it. Brady Corbett's directorial debut. And if you haven't seen Kelly Reichardt's Certain Women, its season has been extended until June 1. Finally, the Mojo Mental Health Week Short Film Festival at the Harmony Centre in Heidelberg is on May 19th, showcasing locally made shorts about mental health in the community. Filmmakers or anyone with an iPhone is welcome to submit a film. Go to mindshare.org.au to find out more. And briefly, Eloise, what's happening over at the Melbourne Cinematheque? Well, at Cinematech we have a pretty exciting slate coming up. So this week on May 11th, oh, May 10th, excuse me, is a co-presentation with the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival. We've been co-presenting with them for the last few years. And this year we have two film restorations from the Film Foundation's World Cinema Project at the Cinematheca di Bologna, um, which we're really excited about. So the first is, a, the program is titled Water Rights. Um, and the first film is Breeds by Emilio Gomez Muriel and Fred Zimmerman um, from 1936. The second is a, a masterpiece called A River Called Titus by Ritwick Gattak, which is promising to be a really amazing um, spectacle and we're super excited about it. Um, so come along if you can. Next week is a profile of the Melbourne Co-op, Melbourne Filmmakers Co-op cool. films which is, we're very excited about as well, you know, some rarely screened films, local films, um, featuring some introductions from some local filmmakers and intellectuals as well. So that should be great. And then, um, drum roll, a three-week season of films starring Robert Mitchum. Oh, no way. So, Robert Mitchum. Is that going to feature the Cultural Capital <laughs> Podcast's favourite film of all time, Night of the Hunter? <laughs> <laughs> it will. In fact, that's opening film. In fact, did I just yell too loud? Yep. And you made some gesture towards the um, microphone. Is the Cultural <laughs> Capital drinking game whenever you hear Night of the Hunter <laughs> take a shot? It's a very good movie, people. It is. That's why they get mentioned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is it, oh, it's not in our top three Maybe horror we films the of the 21st <laughs> no. century. But Maybe we should change the name of that podcast. <laughs> podcast of the Hunter. Podcast of the Hunter. Oh my God, don't give away great titles, Andy. Keep them for yourself. Okay, sorry. Ignore that, everybody. Um, anyway, yes, Robert Mitchum. We're very excited about that. So 
Yeah. He is, but I particularly encourage people who aren't familiar with Robert Mitchum's oeuvre to uh, come to town and have a look because he's such a fascinating screen presence. Mm, he really you is. You know, it's sort of hard to articulate why, but he's really... He really is. And I yeah. need... I'm going to say this. I'm a little bit ashamed, but it's on my Twitter. If you Google search, like, me and Robert Mitchum, this will come up. Which I do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I... Didn't like him at all for a long time. Oh. I thought he was repulsive. I believe I have even used that word, repulsive. He has been a doctor in, I think, at least two films. And he just does not look good in a lab coat. I'm just going to say it. And so it's I was, not because of his Cape Fear role? No, no, no. No, nothing. I used to, like, I didn't like him, but him in Night of the Hunter, and he plays this disgusting preacher. I loved him in that. It was nothing to do with his roles. It was just to do with his face. This is mm. not even, but I think he's the sexiest man alive now. Really? I really do. Wow. He has, like, completely turned me around. I believe the <laughs> first role that, that drew me to him in this excited way was in Track of the Cat. He's got a beard. He, oh, really? It's a lot of snow. He's it's very nice. <laughs> anyway, is this a similar thing that you and Haley Inch have with Warren Beatty? Because I'm flummoxed as to why he is so revered by. I by adore some feminist... Warren Beatty. Yeah, see, but he's like one of the most promiscuous and you know. That renowned... doesn't mean he's like. No, 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 not. not... But le- lecherous as well. But I also am assuming... Is he, though? This is the thing, though. Maybe my sources. I don't think he's lecherous. Uh, see, the Peter Biskin book, um, Easy Riders Radio oh, Bulls, spends a like lot of... gossip. That's rubbish gossip. Is it? Some of it, I'm sure, is factual, but but that it's not written in a... a it's not an impartial account, in my opinion. So he... Maybe he's an arsehole. I don't know. But, look, he's... Married to um, Annette Benning, yeah. So Annette Benning, he must, so he can't he must, yeah. Be all obviously, bad. he's fan, like he's extraordinarily talented. But I'm just confused as to why <laughs> he's like so revered. Like he's so fascinating. He's just so funny. He's so clever. I feel like Warren Beatty, as a comedian, has this level of intellect that just overrides everything else that could bring him down. And also, he's a babe. But you know, like, just so not just Splendor in the Grass. Well, no. I mean, that was his first film. He's done a lot since like, then. He's like had his most babish, I would imagine, in that film. It's true. It's true. He's quite babyish. It's, it's almost too erotic for the early 60s, that film. I still can't believe it exists sometimes. <laughs> anyway, moving on. How about that movie? How about that movie? Movie mm. is pretty great. So, at this moment, I would really like to watch this movie that I missed at MIFF. The Melbourne International Film Festival, I think it was last year, they screened a film called Ruined Heart, another love story between a criminal and a whore. Um, a film from the Philippines, um, although Mubi is telling me that the language is Japanese. Um, and the reason I wanted to see this is, I mean, I love long and awkward titles. Oh, yeah. Um, but also, the cinematographer is Christopher Doyle. Oh, man. Who is Ron Kawai's like famous cinematographer Melbourne's who did own. a lot of his work. Melbourne's own Christopher Doyle. Um, and that was the, you know, the key reason why I wanted to see this film. And I, I ended up missing it because anyone who's been to me for almost any film mm. festival will know that, you know, it's, it's hard to timetable anything. Unless you've got um, a stranger with their face, in which case you can see everything <laughs> quite leisurely. Um, but yeah, I'm quite, and, and movie is also telling me that it's drama, comma, musical. You know, like, who wouldn't want that? So I'm really, really keen. And um, there's 28 days to watch that. So get on board. Get on board. I'm very intrigued by the Georgian documentarian Salome Jashi's The Dazzling Light of Sunset, which is a portrait of a TV journalist in a small town in, uh, in Georgia. Uh, When discussing her film, she said she's interested in the question of what is considered news in small towns while much bigger events are happening around the world. So it's an interesting premise for um, a film and, um, yeah, I'm keen to check that one out. I think there's about 26 days or something left on that too. Mm. Cool. I'm picking uh, Robert Bresson's 1956 film A Man Escaped, which is one of the all-time great prison escape films, and it's all the better for being based on a true story. And true to most classic uh, films of this type, it features oppressively evil Nazis, a resourcefully innocent French resistance fighter, and some astonishingly tense scenes. Um, There's some really, really beautiful monochrome cinematography from the legendary Leonce Henri Burel, 
who also shot Nap- Abel Vance's Napoleon in 1927 as well. So he's been around for quite a while. And I think that film is good enough um, reason alone to get on board with our free month subscription, which you can get by going to movie.com slash cultural capital. And now to our top three horror films of the 21st century. So when we decided on this this um, category of horror films of the 21st century, I was a little bit put out because I don't... The term horror is very kind of fluid and I was like, what kind of horror? You know, is it gothic horror? Is it slasher horror? Is it thriller? Um, you know, there are so many different kinds of horror. And so when I broadened that concept out, I gave myself a lot more films to kind of think about. Yes. Um, in terms of choosing. But still, I mean, even though I had that, the caveat of 21st century, I kept just thinking like my brain would automatically go to films that were from the 70s or <laughs> yes. from the 40s even. And I'm like, shit, I can't use that. But I have gone with three films that are all similar in, in some ways, but I think all very, very key horror genre explorations of the 21st century. So my first choice at number three, I've tried to list these. Um, for this oh, week. Well, thank you. But I don't know if I've done it correctly. So, you know, if you think I that... I don't think that... there's a wrong way. Well, anyway, I, I look forward to anyone's feedback. Is Bluebeard the Catherine Brier film from 2009? So this is the famous Charles Perrault story adapted, written and directed for the screen by Catherine Brier. It's not the first version that has been adapted for the screen, but um, this is one of the best or like a a key version so just in case you haven't heard this tale like anders as we realized earlier this (laughs) afternoon when i was talking i i just assumed that everyone knew about it but but maybe not no fine missed me completely bluebeard is a story a folk tale written by charles perrault about a rich wealthy frenchman named bluebeard who murders his wives and the current wife of the story is forbidden to enter a room. Just FYI, Buffy the Vampire Slayer based an episode on mm. this story in season two, starring the incredible and sorely missed John Bitter. So what's really clever about this adaptation, I think, is the care that is going into its production design. It's a fully imagined fairy tale that is in the film that is imagined through the creative eyes of two young sisters who are reading the story in their dark bedroom, I think in the 1940s or 50s or something. So it's like a a, um, kind of a period movie in, in two senses. As I was saying to Anders earlier, it's so richly detailed and so effective in its reiteration of this story that at times it's almost boring because nothing's happening it's just it's taking such care in setting up you know this environment and the story and the women but it turns out it just in the end you can't tear your eyes away from it it's so rich the you know it's the french countryside there's a castle the castle is incredible the castle is huge there's all of these rooms the room for this this girl who is his bride to go into is is amazing and the blood the blood is amazing. I have to admit, it's a horror film. There is a lot of blood. <laughs> it's exquisite blood. There is a lot of it. And you should really just go and see this movie. It's so rich and so careful, but also it's quite brutal. So. It sounds fascinating. Yeah, Thank that's you. definitely on my list. Um, to what my to watch list. But for this top three list, my number three film is The Strangers, Brian Bertino's 2008 Housebound Horror stars Liv Tyler and Scott Speedman as a well-to-do couple spending the night at his childhood summer home in the middle of nowhere. When the titular strangers arrive at the door, they begin to terrorise this uh, well-to-do couple. Famously, when Tyler uh, Tyler's character asks, why are you doing this? One replies, because you were home, which gets to the whole horror of this film. It's really well made. And I think Bettino's eye for detail recalls that of like, I don't know, I watched it and I thought of 
John Carpenter's Halloween because Halloween is such a well-made film, so perfectly sort of artfully constructed in terms of the shots, in terms of the way that he uses space to create sort of horror and spatial awareness of different characters and uh, in their ginormous houses. And this film plays around with a lot of that too and all of the sort of the strangers wear these like bags over their faces. So they're all sort of like faceless bodies, I guess. One of whom is played by Gemma Ward, the Australian model. The aesthetics of the McMansion is depicted in American horror. I'd read that thesis. Wow. Yeah. Good so, movie. So is it like Funny Games? Because you just made it sound like... Yes, it is kind of like Funny Games. It is. I mean, you could call it a rip-off of Funny Games, I guess, or creatively inspired by Funny Games. But it's much more formally conventional, I guess. I mean, there's none of that crazy breaking of the fourth wall or that, like... Funny Games is probably... The original, anyway, is probably way more um, sort of overwhelming, I guess, um, in a way that this one isn't because it's an American horror film. So, like, the horror... Yeah, funny. The thing that I find really disturbing about funny games is that it really does sort of implicate the viewer. It makes you feel. I mean, it shoves your powerlessness as a film watcher into your face um, with that sort of famous scene with the rewinding uh, TV remote. Now, there's none of that in um, The Strangers, but it's still a really, really well executed look at you know the terror of the the American McMansion. I guess. Um, yeah. So I totally recommend it. Uh, my number three is The Orphanage, or El Orphanato, as almost nobody outside its domestic market in Spain calls it. Um, this is directed by Juan Antonio Bayona. It's his first feature, but it mainly got attention when it was released because of its executive producer, which is Guillermo del Toro. Like your film, Eloisa, it begins as a fairy tale, and then also, like yours, it, it features uh, a child with a bag over their head at some, at some point for extra spooky effect. Um, so it begins as a fairy tale about this woman, Laura, and her husband, Carlos, and their son, Simon, who uh, move into Laura's childhood home in uh, the Spanish countryside, and they begin to work on her plan of opening a school for children with learning difficulties in the orphanage in which she grew up. And uh, So it's this huge rambling building that needs a lot of work, and uh, we also have a really perfect setting for a collision of the domestic and the mundane and the menacing. And pretty early on, on a trip to the seaside, Simone, who is taking daily medication for HIV, uh, ventures into a cave and invites this unseen figure home. He says, do you want to come to my house later to play? And leaves a trail of seashells all the way home just to make sure that uh, this uh, figure can make it. Um, and when I think about it now, I can't really believe it's my number three because it is so terrifying <laughs> from what happens after this, <laughs> this scene. It's one of the best films that explores uh, pedophobia, which I feel that we should mention at some point because it has been a fixture of uh, horror films of the 21st century. There's a lot of scary kids um, that goes right back mm. into The Shining and to The Omen and all that sort of stuff. As Pete, Peter Bradshaw wrote in his review of The Orphanage, um, he said, we're afraid of their vulnerability, which is our vulnerability, and the mysterious otherness of their private mental worlds. So when Simone's friend Thomas turns up to the house and emerges at the end of a darkened corridor with a strange shuffling walk and a hessian sack over his head, you're really primed for something terrifying to happen. But then when Bayona has you like totally engaged, Simone just disappears completely, and he disappears for six months, and then suddenly you're in the very real world of a six month of a police investigation. Geraldine Chaplin then turns up as a psychic um, who can kind of see all these children that you know, these spirits that are around her. Um, and then Laura realizes that she has to work through her own relationship with the orphanage and her own childhood to find out what happened. Have either of you seen this? The yes. Orphanage? Yes, I think I have too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. I saw it. I was in New York when I saw it at the cinema, and I went home to this huge apartment that I was staying in. This huge apartment on the Upper West Side with like a long hallway and lots of bedrooms. I was staying with a woman, and she was asleep, and it was just her and I in the apartment, and I was terrified. When I got back to this apartment and had to like kind of like you know claw my way through, <laughs> it was. Yeah, it was definitely one of those that really got me to the core. Mm. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah it's an amazing yeah, film. Yeah. Highly recommend it. What's your number two? So my number two is Travel Every Day, Claire Denis' film from 2001. Um, so directed by Denis, this is a film about a malfunctioning couple living in Paris, uh, about a husband who locks up his psychopathic and murderous wife. I mean, you know, at the beginning, this film is in some ways an erotic horror that deals also with things like cannibalism. So this is really intense and it depicts everyday existence splattered with these visceral scenes of, of amorous cannibalism, I suppose. The Spanish title was Cannibal Love or Love Cannibal or something. Um, so definitely, you know, very um, aware of, of this, this idea. <laughs> the thing I love about this English title is... It's mundanity. Yeah. As though mm. this is just 
Mm. You know, it's a film about issues that arrive between every couple every day. It's just so shocking and so cold in its incongruity as a title that that's kind of what makes this film fantastic. I mean, it's fantastic in so many other ways as well. It's got your Denis, like, intensity. She's very, very kind of attentive with close-ups, with assessing surroundings, with really um, being really, really um, sensual in her cinematography. Obviously, assisted by the Tindersticks score. So the Tindersticks are a band who, like, famously uh, provide the soundtrack for a lot of Claire Denis' films. And this one is just fantastic. It's such an incredible film that I think is playing... You know, if we think about it as a horror film, playing very intricately with this idea of the monstrous feminine as a woman who is beautiful but also horrifying and vulgar and aggressive and that her love and her ability to act normally with humans is tainted by her aggression and by this inherent, you know, kind of sexual um, desire within her. Plus... You know, Vincent Gallo and Beatrice Dahl. Yes. You know, who could say no? <laughs> My number two is actually three films. It's the first three films in the Final Destination series. Uh, Final Destination. I'm calling them the original Final Destination trilogy. There's technically five of these movies, but I watched the first three as a young teenager, teenager at the same time. And they collectively had a rather major influence on me. The basic premise is... This is a group of people who, in the first film, they board a plane and one of them has this premonition that the plane is going to crash and everybody on board will die. So he convinces uh, his group of people, of friends, to get off and lo and behold, the plane does in fact crash. Because they have all, quote unquote, cheated death, death comes after them one by one in ever more elaborate ways. So... There's a darkly enjoyable pleasure that comes from watching how creative the filmmakers get about killing these pe- these characters. They're increasingly elaborate and increasingly gruesome, and they're sort of they're gruesome in a very safe American horror way, which I think is really interesting and is a really key part of what makes horror films, I think, so interesting and so commercially successful um, as mass audience films because it makes this sort of you know, it, it plays around with death and, like, the darker stuff that we're interested in, but in a sort of... Still in a somewhat safe way, except not really, but kind of. Anyway, it's confusing. <laughs> it's interesting. It's sort of tailor-made to appeal to the sensibility of a teenage boy, is what I'm trying to say here, um, who started reading Stephen King when he was, like, 10, <laughs> which is me. And there's a um, lot of people like that. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, there are. There are. No, yeah. there are. It's funny, the conversations you have with people about this stuff. So, yeah, look, they are, and they get ever more increasingly interesting so i mean you have one of some of the examples is like these girls who get burnt alive in a tanning um bed which is awful uh and then one my my and my favorite one is the one where he goes he goes to the this guy goes to the dentist and like you just see him he's in the chair and there's like a um there's a mobile above him and you can just see like one of he's got his mouth wedged open and the dentist walked off and you can just see one of these objects like teetering and then you see there's like a fish tank beside in the side of the room and there's like it's just like slowly ready to fall and you can see there's like exposed electrical wiring underneath it and it sort of the film suggests like any number of ways in which this guy could die and the way he dies is in fact when he runs out the electrocution happens around him, doesn't electrocute him. He runs out of this <laughs> dentist's office and then I think he runs into a, if I recall correctly, he runs into a group of pigeons that like <laughs> fly up into the air oh my God, and great. cut loose this construction plate glass that then slams on top of it. That's the greatest like, thing I've ever heard. So every sequence gets increasingly more elaborate and like they're like well constructed jokes, death jokes. Yeah, it's very yeah. I wouldn't mind real I haven't seen those movies in years, but I still I think about them all the time in terms of like creative American filmmaking. They're really quite ingenious. <laughs> Alright, cultural capital viewing party. Totally. What about you, Andy? What's your number two? Um, my number two, uh, so my last film, like looked at pedophobia. This one I was looking at another tendency from the movies horror movies in, in this century. There was a spate of remaking Japanese horror movies in the early two thousands. And Ringu or the Ring is like the ver- the one that's best known, but I am arguing for two thousand and two's Dark Water, which is also adapted from the, a book by the same author, Koji Suzuki. By the same director, Hideo Nakata. Um, Darkwater is about Yoshimi, who's this woman who, in the beginning of the film, wins a custody battle to keep her young daughter, Ikuko, 
and they move into an apartment and they begin a new life and once they do strange things begin to happen water stains start appearing in the ceiling and the landlord is ignoring their calls for help there's like a big patriarchal anti-feminist sort of vibe in Japanese society which I'm sure is not is based in reality to some degree so water starts dripping down the wall and then a child's red school bag starts to appear in strange places and then a child in a yellow raincoat begins appearing who may or may not be a figment of the imagination of Ikoko. Um, so there's this really amazingly built gradual wave of tension and dread that just it, it builds all higher and higher in the film. And throughout, the colour scheme starts shifting as well and it's a lot of blues and greys and dark greens and m like muddy, mouldy sort of colours. And the score that kind of oozes like these really long-held chords but then there's these punctuations of industrial sounds which are also similar to the score in The Ring. Um, and this tension is also made all the more powerful by Yoshimi's need to repress all this craziness and appear normal and, and maintain this facade of calm and control because if there's any sign of craziness, she could lose her daughter. So unlike most horror films, these stakes are really, really high and we really, really want them to make it to the end of the movie. Um, so as well as being remade, this um, film has been mined for inspiration. Last year's film, Under the Shadow, which we all liked, um, had similar ambitions being set in the same place and with a woman and a daughter and is something a figment of her imagination or is it real? And, but nothing really touches this film as for being so powerful as an exploration of grief and guilt and this struggle of a woman in an oppressive society, as well as pulling out some of the most terrifying scenes I've seen. But even though even though it's a horror movie, the thing that kind of lingers most is this kind of sadness um, that comes like afterwards. So at every point, I think in, in a film goer's life, there's a point where you see a horror film that sustains interest beyond the scares and these. Mm -hmm. It actually uses it to explore these much deeper themes. And for me, it was this, uh, Hideo Nakata was the first filmmaker I saw who did that. And I think Dark Water kind of does that better than any other of his films. Cool. Well, my number one is a movie that I could talk about for hours and hours, but That's I mine. won't. <laughs> I'll limit it to a few minutes. It's Under the Skin, Jonathan Glazer's yes. film from 2013. <laughs> uh, so this is adapted from a novel by Michelle Faber, which I admit I did not enjoy. I read this several years before the movie came out, before the, the adaptation was even announced, um, and I didn't really like it. The, the film is a tale of an unidentified alien creature who disguises itself as a seductive female human and proceeds to seduce and dispose of male bodies. In the book, this process of uh, disposing the male bodies is a metaphorical criticism of the factory farming process. And I think the imagery used in the film could be in the same vein. You know, you've got that, like, heavy black nothingness mm. with that blood red kind of you know very get out very i was just going to say i no, thought no, of this I film agree. watching get out i also thought of this yeah, film yeah, watching yeah, get out yeah. so yeah that's some good <laughs> horror imagery for you there but um i mean the film is is could be in the same vein but it's not actually commentary for this and there is quite a bit out there about jonathan glazer's adaptation process that he tried very, very hard to adapt the book and in the end just kind of took a few loose ideas and, and dropped a whole bunch of stuff um, in there. But um, in the book, she she's an alien, you know, who just... Well, it, it is an alien who just... Who's very pig-like, um, who disguises itself as a, as a woman and goes around seducing people in Scotland. So it's, a, you know, a similar premise. I think a great way of framing the film... Um, an understanding of the film is with Robert Bresson's quote, the soundtrack invented silence. So Under the Skin begins in darkness and in silence, um, you know, visual and oral components uh, in um, equal components. Gradually, as lights shine fitfully, they are beginning to form an outline of an iris and a pupil. Otherworldly noises come into fray. You get synthesizers, strings, scraping and lacerates. This is Mika Levy's really incredible score. And the film from there takes us into this place where it's a really uncanny imbalance of, like, you know, worldly humanness and otherworldly alienness. And we, even as spectators, I think, we don't really know where we fit. We don't know where mm. Scarlett Johansson, who plays the alien figure, we don't know where she fits. Um, and I think, you know, none of the characters that encounter the Scarlett Johansson figure know either. And so we're all in this really kind of, um, you know, we're in this place that's really up in the air. And as a horror film that creates this, um, you know, like near paralyzing kind of threat, I think. And the sound really contributes to this as an element. I think there's this intense sense of the uncanny to Under the Skin going with that idea of, you know, this Scarlett Johansson character looking human, but she's not human. 
Um, and who knows what is what. She, in the end, she kind of is aware of her own uncanniness and she begins to develop human feelings or get a sense of human feelings. And that is something that is like, you know, universally horrific, I think, you know, trying to think about those ideas. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about Barbara Creed here and her book Phallic Panic, which I bought when Barbara was my lecturer as an undergrad, but have read many times since in uh, thinking about its, um, its importance in terms of the horror film um, and the horror genre. So in horror, if a woman is represented as, a, as monstrous, it's primarily because of a close association with the world of, of body and nature. So the, the woman is primarily associated with nature. Um, and Barbara Creed says, woman's monstrosity is derived from her physical, sexual, and biological identity, which I think is something that so many men in horror films are, you know, they're kind of alleviated from. They don't have that connection that, that is not in- inherently tied to their body and their being. I think this idea of, you know, the monstrous feminine is true of all the films I've discussed here, that the monstrous woman who both knows and attacks the male guardian of power, threatens the male symbolic order. And maybe that's why I'm so drawn to all of these films. Um, But they're just, they can be so powerful because there is something so inherently human about all of these films that deal with the the monster and the monster of the horror, inflictor of horror. Mm. And this film for Scarlett Johansson, for Mika Levy, for the sound, the sensuosity of it is, is really... Amazing, and if you haven't seen it, then please do. It's mm. uh, and it's really interesting what you said because I think it's so true. This idea of this paralysis between yeah, w- what is human and what is alien, and what how do these characters fit, and how does the <laughs> film itself Im- embody these ideas of what humanism is or whatever? Like it's a very yeah. there's a lot going on there. And yeah, even though these creepy. men do nothing wrong at the time, you know, in the film text they do nothing wrong that that makes them deserving of being murdered in this horrific in a horrific, horrific way, way you kind of you understand her yeah, doing yeah, yeah. it totally, even though totally, she totally, totally. doesn't understand it because she's not a she's not a human female she doesn't understand yeah. it mm. yeah, but yeah. you do as a spectator i think and that's so fascinating yeah, yeah. and i think actually possibly better than anything else it works as a documentary about how friendly random glaswegian guys are because <laughs> they're so lovely there's a reason they're lovely i know and did you say no to scarlett johansson and no, they, <laughs> i've spent a while in Gla- around glaswegian random dudes and they've okay. all been really super when you can understand what they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, moving on. My number one is The Tribe or Plemya. Ooh, wow. Um, Ukrainian director Miroslav Slaboshbitsky's harrowing film is set in a boarding school for deaf teenagers. There is no spoken dialogue. Instead, the teenagers use sign language to communicate. And there's no music either. So all the sound is sort of diegetic sound from their environment. I've written here the film is perversely structured like a fairy tale. It's occurred to me that we've all mentioned horror films that play with fairy tale structure. The way I saw it as being fairy tale structured in a fairy tale in the sense that the main kid that the film sort of starts on, um, he's in this very depressed looking Ukrainian town. We see him walking around the town and he's sort of in his social environment and he talks to two people at the or he communicates because he he can't speak to two people at the bus stop and uh, looking for his school and they direct him in the right, right way and then the principal sort of guides him into the school and throws him in the arms of someone and then from that moment on it's like you're in another universe a parallel universe where there's no authority figures this community outside of the confines of this school and the activities of the teenagers that the film follows it just sort of disappears there's no interest to this film so yeah so the rest of the film is this very sort of uncomfortable deep dive into what turns out to be an incredibly bleak portrait of ukraine in one memorable scene we watch as a truck reverses over a teenage boy who because he's deaf can't hear it approaching um so this sort of scene is horrific to watch and it classically exploits that old horror chestnut of the hierarchy of knowledge. So who knows what? Here the audience knows more than this character and we can see what's going to happen and we know what's going to happen. And because of that, it's sort of this horrifying, drawn-out sequence. So the movie's full of these like really, really quite disturbing sequences and scenes and it is it is deeply, deeply uncomfortable viewing but also completely compelling. 
and the sign language that's used gives it a really interesting visual element um, to the way they sort of when characters fighting they're like furiously signing at each other and then the use of sound too again is really really interesting you know because he said the director said this isn't a film for deaf people which is kind of like horrible thing to say but also i can see what he means because the use the soundscapes are amazing so uh, and all created from natural the natural sound of the film so yeah i totally recommend it but it's it's one of the bleakest films i've ever seen but yeah very very horrific and that's the tribe Yes, Plemya, which I think oh, it was on Stan. It was screening, uh, streaming on Stan oh, a while ago. Okay, cool. Yeah, funnily enough. Nice one. Okay, so my number one is not specifically a horror film, but I will argue till the day I die that it is horrific. For two scenes alone, I think this deserves to be on the top of my list. And one of them we'll hear in a moment too. So this film is Mulholland Drive, and I think better than any other film in this century, it's uh, it kind of breaks down every physiological response to horror that you have so there's like the quickening heart and the prickling skin and the inability to look away and there's the scare and the jump scare and it's everything is like broken down and sustained in this really beautiful way so the one scene that i think makes it alone the scariest thing is the winkies diner scene and that if you look at this scene which we'll play in a moment it kind of ruins every single rule that you have in horror because it tells you exactly what's about to happen and it breaks it down very slowly and very carefully mm. so that you know exactly everything that you're going to see and so you never see these characters before or after this scene in the film either so they just kind of have this lead exist in this kind of in their own reality to begin with but <laughs> it's kind of they're absolutely amazingly effective at being totally terrifying so there's also, if you listen, there's this faint electronic hum that is in the back of a lot of David yeah. Lynch's scenes as well. The dialogue is weirdly slow. Yes. And there's this feeling of unease that kind of just permeates every single yeah, interaction. And the, sorry to interrupt, but the, I love how the camera is like floating. It's never stable in this scene. It's always like bobbing. It's like it's bobbing on a wave or something. Yeah. So this is, I think, where technology finally caught up with what Lynch had been trying to do. He would have loved to have been able to do that, I'm sure, for a razorhead even. Mm. But also I'm expecting in the new Twin Peaks there'll be a lot of um, floating cameras um, because there, this is this amazing POV thing that you you can have. And in Mulholland Drive is full of just cameras like you know, at head height moving into rooms or down corridors and that sort of thing. And there's so many other scenes in this film as well which are, which are, are scary or just have this unease, particularly in the way that it slowly builds up to one of the most confusing reveals in, <laughs> in, um, as well from any cinema in this century. But um, listen closely to this. I just wanted to come here. To Winkies? This Winkies. Okay. Why this Winkies? It's kind of embarrassing. Go ahead. I had a dream about this place. Oh boy. See what I mean? Okay. So you had a dream about this place. Tell me. Well, <clears throat> it's the second one I've had, but they're both the same. They start out that I'm in here, but it's not day or night. It's kind of half night, you know? But it looks just like this, except for the light. And I'm scared like I can't tell you. Of all people, you're standing right over there. By that counter. You're in both dreams. And you're scared. I get even more frightened when I see how afraid you are, and then I realize what it is. <laughs> There's a man in back of this place. He's the one who's doing it. I can see him through the wall. I can see his face. I hope that I never see that face ever outside of a dream. 
thank you very much for making it to the end of Cultural Capital. If you want to rate and review us on iTunes, we'd be very, very grateful. Um, you can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. You can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm there at Anders Furs. And you can find me at Eloise Laurie Ross. <laughs>